Here we are. Here we are. All right. You mentioned my 80s slang, and you said yeah, that yeah. I used the word jet. As a verb. What's so funny to me is that it reminds me of the band The Jets. The Jets. Which is one of the best 80s bands ever. And <laughs> and like Lisa, Lisa, and the Cult Jam, these are very closely tied to me. <laughs> the Jets Those are not my video- swag. Not really into the Jets uh, musicals or whatever. What kind of music are the Jets? Lost in in Emotion. You remember that song? No. Oh, yes, you do. (laughs) Come on. It's like a very Miami Vice. Type. Is it really? Yeah, I gotta go yeah. check it out then. Yeah. Maybe I have heard it. I just not you ringing have. a lot of bells, but maybe, man. Anyway, it's October fifth. How you doing, man? I'm good. Busy times, dude. Fall is here. Georgia's starting to turn orange, and you know, like it's cool, man. A lot of jack o' lanterns at the Trader Joe's, or not jack o' lanterns, pumpkins at Trader Joe's. You know, I walked into Trader Joe's the other day, and it just fucking smelled like pumpkin spice, and I'm like, oh god, we're here. What What are your top items at Trader Joe's? This is a very important question. Um, couple things. So they have these, like, you know, I'm a big Reese's uh peanut butter cups guy, and Trader Joe's has these like Reese's peanut butter cup Trader Joe's brand mini Reese's looking things. And they are, I eat them by like the fistful. So like that, you know, very healthy, but like, I love them. All their candy solid, by the way, like their salsas are good. I love their salsas. I buy all their salsas and then I buy all their chips and eat the salsas. So like, I'm kind of big on those things, man. Those are my heavy items at TJ's. So Lauren, my wife is super into the white truffle potato chips. I'm not, I'm not a truffle guy, but she swears, she swears by those. And I think my favorite stuff is the like, ease of cooked chicken that you can just put into something you know yes. kind of it's like done fired up yeah oh and by the way i'm gluten free and they got a lot of gluten free shit man yep. especially on the bread side like uh, tj's bagels man well, I, look tj or yeah. tj trader joe's listen if you want to sponsor us holler at me and we will talk about <laughs> your products for hours and hours but shout out to tj's man and they're they're nice, you know. They've got the they've got a stuffed lobster or, or like a toy lobster that they hide, and the kids find it. They get a lot. What did you just say to me? I didn't know this. They have a a, a lobster that is hidden around everywhere. No and way. If you find it, they give. If it's a kid, that you find no. it, they give you a lollipop. But what about if you're an adult? I think you should try. I'm gonna go you for say, it. Man. It's abo- above produce near the scallops, and then they'll give you the, the what? <laughs> yeah. Dude, yeah. I, I'm going to tackle some poor kid and take a yeah. lobster. Or man. just bring a kid in with you. Yeah, oh, yeah, it's just a random kid. Hey, kid, you want to make yeah. five bucks? Because let's find this lobster. Yeah, that's not creepy at all. Andy, well, my daughter, my daughter, legit. my one daughter, if I'm with one of them, she'll she'll find it and she'll say, can I have another one for my little sister, which is really nice. That is but, very you know, nice. you could also manipulate that yeah, to get hustle. one for That you. can turn into a hustle real quick. Yeah. yeah. She's got street knowledge, man. That's dope. Yeah, she's great. <laughs> great at it. That's dope, man. Talk about all our right. guests. Yes, one of our uh, friends who who we've known when we had more hair. Yeah, so dude, it's, been, it's, it it's been a while. We've known him for several years. Uh, when he was starting, I met him when he was at Twitter. Yeah, meet same here, same here. Um, but he's been the CPO of Viacom since then and deputy general counsel at Bank of New York. And now he's the GC of a Web3 company called Trust Machines. Yeah, and he Machines. was at the FTC before all of it, yeah. right? So like kind of made the rounds. And I love people with careers like his because – Mine sort of resembles it, right? Like I, I've not been a like all law firms or all in-house or all government type of path. And um, I think he's an experimenter and experimenters are valuable in any organization, man. And like, I think we're undervalued in some ways because I consider myself the same. 
He's he's just like what I love about him is the the way he thinks about things. You mean like he's smart? Uh, <laughs> he's smart, he's man. definitely smart. But I think he's he also good. like it's, it's a rare, it's rare to have the combo of someone that can zoom out and in, mm-hmm. which is really no, just a critical. He's like he's the Carl Zeiss of privacy lawyers. Is that what you're saying? Like, wait, is that the zooming lens? I don't know. Whatever, man. <laughs> <laughs> maybe he's the neil degrasse tyson all right well, that's cool right. we can work with that yeah i saw him speak recently neil neil yeah what was he talking about black holes origin of life or okay. life, life life on in the universe is there life in the universe he always goes for the lightest topics you know like yeah just Have, real, like, yeah easy coffee flavors he's really big on simple yeah keeping it real yeah. simple man. all right well the uh neil degrasse tyson of privacy and and uh <laughs> Carl's ice, man. It's Manas. <laughs> All, <laughs> All right, right. Let's do here it. Here it is. Man. All right. Here we are. We're here. <laughs> All right. <laughs> we did it. Special guest today. Manas Mohapatra, a friend of ours for several years. We would try to Millions make it happen. Make it happen for a while. So we're we're psyched that you're here. Thanks for being here. Yeah, man. Thanks yeah. for joining us. Very, very psyched to join you yeah. guys. So long time listener. <laughs> is that is that a bicycle I see behind you? Is that what I'm seeing back there? It is. It's my it's my road bike. Nice. Yeah. That's a cool little hybrid bike, man. So you are you a rider? I try. I try. Post pandemic, as like uh, you know, or post during. I uh, I live right by Prospect Park. Oh, Park, super so, cool, man. Uh, that's that's my like lunchtime. So you ride in the city. I try. You yeah. risk it all, man. Good for you. <laughs> I was driving last night. And there was a guy riding a bike. He was wearing all black. I was. It was raining. I was Night driving rider, home from the Sox game, and I was like, "This guy's crazy." So stealth mode. I'm hoping you don't do that. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty. You know, I'm a dad of two. Yeah. So I like. I try to keep my thrill seeking to to reasonable levels. Have nice. you broken your collarbone yet? That's how you know when someone's a real bicyclist, man. <laughs> I know, I know. That's I have like a buddy who's like, until you go over the the handlebars, gotta go over the handlebars. Cycling, you gotta go over. I haven't yet, and I feel like my healing now, like how old I am, I I, I'm I'm gonna keep it like. (laughs) You're talking to a veteran here of three broken collarbones, man. I only have two collarbones, but I've broken them three times, (laughs) so it's not fun, man. So don't dig high side over the handlebars. That's gonna hurt, man. Don't. All right. Well, so b- bike accidents notwithstanding, let's let's get yeah. into it a little bit. But I so we said before we clicked record, we were going to skip your law firm days. But I did notice <laughs> that you went to Hopkins, and I grew up in Baltimore, so like I do want to know like what was your take on on Hopkins at the time? I love Baltimore. I you know I I think Baltimore is just such a great, unpretentious, down to earth super cool and super interesting place like and i think the the, like the quick way that i always describe it to people is like at least like in the old days you know john waters is the patron saint of baltimore Mm. which is like it just gives you a sense of like how weird and quirky and cool baltimore is and they're just like doing their own thing so i i I love Baltimore. yeah it's got a lot of baltimore years and I miss Baltimore. I love eating in Baltimore. Me too. Food town, I always say, you know, Boston, we live in, the three of us live in major cities. And like yeah. Boston, New York, and New York is a special thing. But like in Boston, it's really good on the high end, similar to DC. 
but the middle tier is not great. And Baltimore, like yes, and Baltimore Trash. kills the middle, the middle tier. Like it does, kills it. So you know what you can't. Since we're on food, New York obviously slice of pizza anywhere. You can't get a good slice of pizza in Washington D.C., man. You just can't. Well, I lived there for eleven years. I'm. I searched for eleven. Manas, years. you lived there too. So did you have a take on that? Pizza Paradiso. So it's, it's, good. it's not bad. It's it's you I know call it a good slice of pizza, but it's edible. Yeah. <laughs> well, the, I mean that, that was before living in New York. You you make do, but you know, Paradiso was good. Paradiso was good. Two Amy's was one while I was living there, and and it was pretty good. And then the infamous Comet Ping Pong, which was wrapped in scandal, <laughs> wrapped in scandal later. But um, you know, I, it had good pizza. <laughs> so no. all right, let's 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 go. Let's dig in a little bit. Like, uh, super curious about. Not the law firm necessarily, but then you go into the FTC and um, what was that like for you? What did that, what, what caused the desire to go in there and what were you kind of thinking when you went in there and what were you hoping, you know, would be the outcome? Yeah. I mean, it kind of touches on the law firm. Like if, if you look at my background, I, I did a, a year and a half at, at a law firm. And if I stayed there, I wouldn't be practicing law today. Right. Like I, I just, I, it was to me, one of the most oppressive like I don't fit in here, and this is so old school places I've, I, I ever lived uh, or ever worked. Uh, going to the FTC was this like breath of fresh air, and I didn't really know what I was getting into. And um, I honestly had two choices: I was going to go to the Division of Privacy or the Division of Fraud, um, Division of Marketing Practices. And the marketing practices folks, like they get jackets and go what? on raids, like they do boiler room raids, right? Like what? with law enforcement. So I was like, oh man, I would love it. <laughs> like FTC jacket. And and like the people at marketing practice like, why are you going to go into privacy? You just go for like these big data breaches. And then after somebody loses like a million SSMs, you go and say, what did you do wrong? Okay, don't do it again. Blog <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I was like, you know, I get the privacy stuff. I'm a former web developer. Um, I used to like, I'm a database programmer, like, and that's, I was like, I think that this is going to be a big deal. This is 08. So, um, and it was, you know, and it, we ended up doing a lot more than data breaches, obviously. And, you know, just in terms of government work, it's like you can get a lot of responsibility and a lot of autonomy very early in your career. I think there's an element of privacy people, people that end up focusing on privacy, particularly in companies that are B2C. It's also in there in B2B, but we've talked about this before where, Privacy folks tend to care about outcomes for people. And so I think part of that, and was that true for you? I mean, I think, I believe that's probably the case with a lot of people that go work in government, particularly FTC. But was that, were you thinking about that too? I mean, absolutely. Part of it is I went to law school to be a human rights attorney. So like, I'm a, I'm like a failed human rights attorney. That's kind of the the big title of my career <laughs> like whatever else i like succeed that has to be like, like linkedin <laughs> snippet man like yeah. failed human rights attorney yeah like, like um but you know i've always tried to do stuff that's mission driven you know and, and even in kind of the jobs that i take and where i've worked that's like feeling like a sense of purpose and that's the thing about at the ftc like you don't bring cases unless like, you know, you're trying to protect consumers on that on that side of the house, you know, for better or worse. And they, they get critiques. But like, you know, the, it was 
full of and still is full of like very mission driven people trying to do the right thing that, you know, honestly are probably underpaid, uh, like not particularly well respected and, and not lauded for what they do and, and trying their best to do things to help protect folks who aren't otherwise able to, to protect themselves in, in terms of like bringing cases or bring, you know, bringing lawsuits, you know, to, to protect their data. From a tech perspective, you came with a tech background. I think some people who are on the outside looking in have no idea what's going on in there. They tend to be like, well, they're, you know, the FTC isn't as smart on tech as the people in the <laughs> tech companies. They love to say that. But, but is that, I don't think that's true. But what's your take on that? Cause I'd like to know from someone who was there. <laughs> Look, look, I think that's a very common and, and I think there's like there's the the true thing. And then there's the like public policy. Like we like to say you can't possibly regulate us because you don't understand us. So just stay away and let us cook um, is, is kind of the industry you know perspective. I say that now having been in the industry for for many years, like I think there's something fake to that. I, I do think the agency had to like get itself up to speed. I think that was one of the reasons I got to take on a bunch of responsibility early on. I was like four or five years out of law school and I worked on the the first Facebook case. I was one of the three attorneys on, on, on the first Facebook case. And I got that job because I was like, Oh yeah, I get this. Like, I understand how this works. And they're like, all right, go like, and, and, and so that's been great. I think they've built up their tech expertise over the years, yeah. like tremendously. Yeah. I don't think they have the level of resources where it's like industry has just you have how many engineers, how many attorneys, how many people thinking about this on a day to day basis. And you've got a very tiny percentage of that in the government. And yeah, so so I think they're just outgunned. I don't think it's it's a lack of knowledge. Yeah, that makes sense. So what what precipitated the move to Twitter, which is. uh you know, certainly mission driven in a lot of ways, you know, in, in what they do. And were you the first privacy lawyer or one of them or, or somebody focused on that? So I I started actually not just on privacy. They didn't have a privacy group, right? I was one of the first three product attorneys there. Um, and we basically just split it up where I did all of consumer. Uh, somebody else did all of advertiser and somebody else did all of developer. That was it. Just three, three product attorneys. So it's like, Oh, anything that's user facing um, on Twitter, you know, you, you, you can help support. And we had, you know, obviously like other subject matter uh, experts. Part of why I was interested was that was a group, especially I joined in 2013 while it was still a private company. Um, and the folks that were there were super high quality. AMAC was the uh, general counsel, Alexander McGillivray. Uh, Nicole Wong is the person who hired me into Twitter. Uh, so I was like thrilled to get a chance to work with her. I never did. She took a job as deputy CTO for the United States, like right after I accepted my job. But um, it was just this like really tremendous group of people that were trying to do things the right way. And I think from the FTC, I spent a bunch of time trying to define what the floor was here's enforcement, here's what you must do. Um, and I thought that if you were on a platform, working at a platform uh, with huge impact, you can help define kind of the ceiling or best practices or push things, you know, in, in the right direction. Um, you know, you can try at least. And, and, and I felt like it was a group of people that were trying to do the right thing. 
for, for, for better or worse. How did Twitter change during the time? Because they went public while you were there, yeah? Like, yeah. So, so how, how was that transition and how did it affect your work? Um, it, it's like, you know, it's really sad. Like we're, we're doing this like the day after maybe it seems like well, I'm going there go next. I'm going again. there next. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting. I think that the being a public company and the pressures that come with that and the focus on user growth, like one of my, I did everything consumer for a very long time, including growth. And so that was, all, you know, Twitter's like foundational issue as a business was for the people who love it, they really love it and it's indispensable. But it was how do you go from like a 200 million, 300 million user service to a billion user service? And they 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 just never bridged that gap. They still haven't yeah, been able to bridge that gap. And and I think it ended up bringing in a lot of folks with short time time horizons, you know, of like trying to fix this do it quickly and bounce out. Like, um, and I think that, you know, also when you go public and there's a lot of money involved, like it brings in people who are not necessarily as mission driven, not as motivated, you know, for the right things. Mm -hmm. Um, and you're, you know, your, your focus gets diffused. So that that's where it's just been like, there, there's a lot of different identities. Like, I don't know if you guys remember, like Twitter did live streaming of NFL football yep. on Thursday nights. Yeah. Like, I mean, that's like just like a weird fever. That was only, that there was there only like there five years ago either. That wasn't yeah. that long ago. And yeah. Yeah. I was there for that. <laughs> we were there for Vines, no? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Can we talk yeah, about Vines for a second? Because I think that, like <laughs> Twitter was ahead of its time, like way ahead of its time. Like this is short form video right there, man. Like and it, and people are still nostalgic about Vines. I am like that was one of the best products I ever saw. How does that not succeed? I, what, what went wrong there? It's, it's just, I don't know if it's one of those things of being too early. Like I'm sure the folks that were at Vine, cause Vine was like a pre-launch acquisition, I right? See. So it wasn't organic. Uh, and so the Vine folks were in New York and, and, you know, we had to kind of make nice with it. I'm sure they have opinions as to like how Twitter messed it up. <laughs> um, but I felt like th there was real promise there, you know, Periscope, that was another acquisition, uh, when we're there and that was like, Oh, live streaming is going to be this huge thing. Like, and, and you know, we, we think that we had the opportunity. There were so many possible projects, you know, and, and it's, it's a $44 billion question about like, why, why, why didn't we get it right? You yeah, know, man. in a way it's like, it's been successful, but it's never been successful enough to reach escape velocity to the point where like the world's richest man can just come and pick it up mm -hmm. and, and be like, I'll take that. You know, and, yeah. and that's honestly just sad to me. Yeah. And so to that point, like um, I, I have a lot of friends at Twitter now and a lot of friends that have gone through Twitter and off to other things. This has to be a hard time to work there. Um, it just has to be like it's a hard time to work in tech period right now. I think not from, you know, from a like, uh, I don't know, from like a stability standpoint, things feel like for the first time, our feet aren't on solid ground at all tech companies. But like, I think Twitter specifically with the Elon Musk back and forth thing and like the latest news this week that all of a sudden it, his offers back on and sort of using the company as a like tool in his dot world domination plan. It's got to be nerve wracking to work at Twitter, whether you're like the lowest level engineer all, or whoever, all the way to the, you know, the C-suite. I'd be freaking out. I, w I would not feel very steady. And that can't have a good impact on like LRP, you know, like long range planning for the company. Like, 
any thoughts on that? No, I, t- I mean, I totally agree. It's, it's, you know, one is it's a great group of people. I'm yeah. like very connected great to people folks there. that still were there uh, and still are there. Um, and I think it's, you know, it's challenging. I think there's people that really, really believe in it. And I think that even like when I left Twitter, like my friends that have left it, it's not just the job. It's like you felt like you were, you know, if you could crack this nut, this thing was really important. And now in terms of like what the focus is, is is it's interesting to me to feel like, oh, Twitter censors too much. That is that the is that really the thing? And where do you want to go? Like that that's not the lesson I take from the last X number of years. Like I that that isn't, you know, that's my own personal viewpoint. And so I don't know who who's going to stay, what they're going to be drawn to and what they're looking for and looking to do, um, because it, it and if it's going to just get used in like the ideological debates between the different sides that that I would be really worried about. Mm-hmm. So I think it's really important that good people stay and remain and and continue. But I, I, I wouldn't blame folks for heading for the exits. It's going to be interesting to see how it all plays out. Some people will. Some people will stick it out, I'm sure, because they'll want to see what happens on the other side because there's there are possibilities on the other side. But for you, um, you were there for several years and then you took this leap to a really big company. So that's actually an interesting like segue to me because Twitter is, I think in perception, Twitter is, is lumped into, we, we've talked about this before, is lumped into the group with Meta and TikTok and some of the, and like, it's a lot smaller. And then you go to Viacom, which is like, I don't know, top 50 biggest companies in the world. I mean, it must be up there, right? So what was that like? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, so a little bit of background there was like, it wasn't my first time at Viacom, right? So I used to make web pages, websites for Nickelodeon. So before I went to law school, I was um, a Nick.com developer. So if you ever like went to the Rugrats movie website or like played a video game on Nick.com, I built that like that. <laughs> so that that's kind of like I and I knew folks still in the building. I just, you know, had been a lawyer and, and part of it was like a life circumstance thing. So just just we were in San Francisco. We had two kids. We moved to the East Coast to be closer to family and so when you go to the East Coast, like I was then doing this head of privacy thing for Twitter, where I was largely dealing with dealing with regulators, but I was kind of in an island on an island doing that by myself. Like there wasn't a big legal group. There wasn't product folks. I wasn't like near close to the pulse. And so part of it, like Viacom had this chief privacy officer role. I took, I had a bet that for media companies, data was going to become more and more important. And um, that was that was a little bit of like rolling, the, you know, rolling the dice. And so I, I understood it. Um, it was a very different assignment, right? Like very, you know, Viacom is MTV, BET, Paramount, Nickelodeon. Like, so we have kids privacy. We Oh, we had logo. We have sexual orientation data. We have race. We have like, it's like, we don't have a ton of data. We just have all the most sensitive, all the sensitive types. <laughs> like, so it's like, it was, you know, it's like a, a fun challenge for that and, and, and really good people. Um, is there, is it like, so obviously on Twitter, it's not anything goes, but like it's low curated content, meaning like individual people are posting whatever they want and sort of Twitter takes a hands-off approach other than when it violates policies or whatever. But so like for the most part, you can go on Twitter and post whatever you want. High quality, low quality, doesn't matter. Um, 
Viacom CBS and the properties you just mentioned is highly curated, like produced, expensive content. Like, does that change the culture of the company in, in some way? Does that like affect like how you go about doing your privacy work or it, it, does it does it not? I mean, it's, it certainly does. Right. It, I mean, it part of it is the scale of, of of the issue. Right. UGC platforms just have bigger numbers, like massive, massive numbers. Like, and even when you're dealing with like, and I imagine it's the same at Netflix or, you know, Disney, like in terms of Disney plus, like you have huge user bases, but because of the curated experience, right? This is like content consumption and it's not two way, which helps quite a bit, right? Like that, that, that helps. It becomes like the biggest challenges are, you know, as you're trying to monetize that data, right? Or as you're starting to look at different revenue streams, right? These media companies, they made all their money. They're like largely, you think of them as consumer brands, but they're business to business. Like the, the cable companies are their real clients, right? And they would sign these massive deals and they would get revenue from that. And so that's what they're focused on. As that dwindles, it's like, no, I've got to go direct to consumer. Oh, okay. That's a new muscle. Oh, I've got to then figure out what the different business models are related to like subscription or ads or, you know, and then, well, what data am I sitting on related to that? And and so there, there's, you know, it's an interesting and evolving set of issues in the media landscape. I think because... I joined while it was also shrinking and consolidating, right? There's a lot of turbulence that comes with a merger. Like with, we, you know, we, we merged with CBS and I, I was the chief privacy officer for the combined company, but it was not going to be without a good amount of messiness, right? And, and it's unclear whether or not like the consolidation's done uh, in the media space because of the pressures from like the UGC platforms, from the metas and, and how did you work your way through the scale difference? You know, because like to me, that's really a, an outstanding problem, which is like not all the properties you mentioned, right? There's people in there doing privacy work, right? And if you're trying to manage so s the breadth of that, was it uh, a matter of having a really great team that, that you worked with or what was your approach to that level of scale? I, you know, I'll, I'll tell you the approach that I took, and I don't know that it's always the right one, but it was a very federated model when I when I came on, right? And it was not only like the brands are different and kind of doing their own thing; the brands in different countries are doing their own thing, right? So if you're you're in like the Netherlands versus if you're in Spain, you are actually like having different lawyers give you different privacy advice, and I was like okay, I'm going to consolidate all of this. And the way that I can actually be effective is I'm going to federate, like I'm going to actually be a very strong centralized force, right? It's one of those things like, oh, I'm sitting here. I think this seat should be very important. It's a little bit self-serving, but I actually thought it was going to be like very, you know, I thought it was going to be much more efficient because I joined six months before GDPR went into effect. So it's- Good times. Yeah. Too early, like, too late to actually architect the entire plan and too late to be like, oh, well, it was the person before me. <laughs> so I'm like right in that like dead zone of like, oh man, this is, this is going to hurt. And because I was at Twitter, like Twitter being who they were, we did our GDPR work like two years in advance. So I'd already done it, like a big portion of it at Twitter. And I was like, okay, I got to do it here. So I also just like, I've done the reps. Yeah. Like I know how to do this. So I ended up doing a bunch of like, let me go to Europe 
explain to all of these European lawyers why they should listen to this dumb American uh, and like that they can trust me. And they were like, okay, like, yes, we will give you control over this. And so we can have a uniform set of policies that we will then federate out. And that was the only way, like I had a very small team that I grew and grew and grew, but that was the only way that you could have consistency is that like we had to be the centralized choke point to make sure that we were being consistent. How do you approach outside counsel there? Because like in that, in that vein, right, even at smaller companies, I've had trouble, especially now that Phil Lee is taking a break. I've had trouble finding like a one to two firms that can give global coverage. So like, were you approaching it from, all right, I'm going to work with one kind of consolidated partner because you can't do it all yourself, but like, I'm going to work with one consolidated partner or a, a set of law firms or like, I'm going to keep the local firms. And like, how did you sort through the the challenges with outside counsel? Because we all have people we trust, right? And we want to like bring them in and get their take on stuff. Yeah, it, it was a slow turn because we had stuff in flight, right? And part of it is we had consulting folks on, you know, on deck and law firms and, and you know, all due respect for folks that work in the consulting side, like, a lot of times their incentives are to build out programs that surprise they can continue to staff for many years right like it's it's you know it's it's a little bit self-serving and it's not the most efficient certainly not most cost cost effective so i i ultimately ended up shifting over to folks that i had prior relationships with i worked with a lot of former ftc folks that are in private practice who i trust who i also have kind of similar sensibilities you know, as a former regulator, I actually think I'm more risk tolerant because like I always say this is like I know yep. all the cases that weren't brought. Um, so so I have a better sense of kind of lines. Can you can related you to that? can you say who you worked with? Because I think people that listen, they like to know who's good at what, um, yeah. you know, I, I think uh, everybody has their own people they trust and whatnot. But it's always good to hear like what someone was successful at. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, absolutely. So uh, I had worked very closely with uh, Perkins uh, at Twitter and, you know, and my friend Janice Kessenbaum's partner there, we had both worked, uh, you know, at the FTC together. I just really trust her, Meredith Halama, yeah. like just amazing practical advice, really good. You guys owe me lunch if, if anyone hires you after nice. listening to this. Uh, <laughs> um so I, you know, I trust them. I think the global side was really tough, right? Because you, we, we had two European headquarters, one in the UK, one in Spain, and like just different risk tolerances, you know, between the UK and Spain with Brexit, people were like, do we really need to go all in, <laughs> you, you know, on, on some of this stuff? And so I thought Field Fisher um, was really good uh, in terms of giving me pragmatic uh, thoughtful advice that wasn't just like pointing me back to like certain articles in the GDPR. <laughs> so yeah. th that's, but, but it's, it's, uh, it's, you know, the, the general law firms, but then the individuals, you know, like, um, yeah. And, and word of mouth is like huge. Like you, you know, you, you've turned me on to like in my current role, like Latham has been amazing for, for the folks yeah. that, you know, I'm working with. Yeah. I mean, that's really interesting. I, I've, Pedro, I'd be interested to hear how, you know, you don't, maybe you're using outside counsel in a different way now at Meta, but I've been finding it's really difficult to find European coverage that can also kind of help us diagnose what's happening in the U.S. at the same time. 
And it's, yeah. it's hard because I really think you need that. And you could still, you could have multiple firms, but I really think like maybe we're moving towards a model where you need like two or three, yeah. which is. I'll tell you what I did. I'll tell you what I did at Salesforce and at Oracle, but more so at Salesforce is like, like my Latin American counseling team, my Mila counseling team, and then North America, right? Like I made them work together. Like I, I would hire local people, but I would force them to work together. And like when they have to do that, they don't love that at first, but then they realize that how helpful that is for me as the client. But more importantly, for them not to overlap, do, you know, give redundant advice and sort of like provide me a package instead of three separate things that now I have to synthesize and make work with each other. They're providing me a, 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 a an advice package collectively that it's just easier for me to digest and, and federate out to the team. I don't love hiring American firms overseas. I just don't like doing it. Um, uh, and so like my Latin American coverage, I had a Brazil local firm. I had a Colombian local firm. I had an Argentinian local firm. Now in Latin, I have a huge advantage. I speak Spanish. I can talk to people, yeah. right? Um, in the EU, that's trickier. And you're not going to hire a law firm in each country. I mean, maybe you, if you have an infinite budget, that's cool. But like, you know, but I think having like local lawyers that understand like the inner machinations of how to get results in regions is really important. And it's hard to do that from a New York office who's telling me they have an associate who speaks Chinese, right? Like, no, I, I want a lawyer in Hong Kong. Like that's sort of like my, my take on that. Did you have in-house lawyers in those countries too, though? Uh, like it, I mean, at or at Oracle and Salesforce, sure. I mean, yeah. but very small footprint and not privacy people necessarily. Right. Like, You've always got sort of like local commercial council, you know, doing their thing, which they can serve as like a facilitator for a lot of stuff. But no, like especially at Oracle in the early days. No, we didn't. We just did. MasterCard, uh, MasterCard bought my last company. And I, so I was there a, a little bit and they did a nice job of putting local privacy lawyers in different countries. They had obviously they had people in Europe, but they had um, other other regions, too. So I don't know if Viacom did that or not. Uh, we we were starting, you know, that was one of the, we ended up hiring, you know, um, an EU DPO and, and um, we're, we're starting to build it out. We did have lawyers in, in all of these places, which was which was good. I I tend to the Twitter model, which is kind of born a little bit out of efficiency, is that right? Like you you lean into this lead supervisory authority, you pick your international headquarters, very similar to like the the meta model the early days that I haven't followed in terms of like later on so you you can say like look I've got lead Irish counsel right and they're helping set the tone so you can think about the local nuances but you have to have like a driving force I think if you federate it too much I think you just get this very fragmented and inconsistent approach and that that's like you know, you take on some risk, I think, for going with a uniform approach. But like the benefit of it is you have a clear narrative. You have a strong approach. Like I spent a ton of time in front of a bunch of regulators, like in Asia, in Europe, uh, like during my Twitter days. And I think that like having that consistent narrative and feeling strong about it does go a long way rather than thinking about like, well, this, you know, in the local jurisdictions, like, no, we want to know how this platform works and we care about this issue. And it's like, yeah, I'll tell you how we handle this issue. It, rather than like, well, you know, Article 3 of the local <laughs> law requires us to do this thing. And so we've managed that because in this part of our terms, it's, it's like that that's not actually what they want, I think, is that they, they want assurances related to like, how are you actually doing this stuff? And that you've been really thoughtful in your approach to it. Yeah. So so 
this is great. I do want to touch on Web three, and I want to touch on the on like some of this because like we talked a while about you know potentially you're like ah someday I definitely want to be a GC and uh, and then you went to Bank of New York and took this broader role that allowed you to touch on commercial and some of that stuff. I think all along thinking at some point you know I'd, I'd like to to be the GC and now you are at Trust Machines. So like what was the uh, what was the sort of experience at the bank and that led you to you know where you are now I'm curious to to dig in on like where you are now too yeah yeah happy to like I I think if you look at my resume it kind of is just like what what are you doing <laughs> like and, and I, I think just like the thread across it is like I'm really interested in technology I'm interested in how technology impacts the world, impacts industry, impacts businesses. And so like the bank reached out to me and they said, hey, look, uh, we know you're a privacy person. We know you're a data person. Um, We want you to be our lead technology lawyer. We think technology is going to totally change financial services. Come help us think about this. And, And so it was totally like a very different thing. I had commercial, I had IP, I had third party governance. Um, but it was all kind of with this context of like, you know, and I got inter- you know exposed to digital assets because I was the lead attorney for our, our digital assets business. It's a very different skill set than, than all the ones. Like I had a team of 50 people um, worldwide. And so at that stage and at that scale, you're, you're just architecting stuff. You, you like don't push paper. You don't negotiate stuff. You're like setting up this structure to build out your teams to go attack. So it's a, it's a very different skill set. And it was like an, a really interesting muscle to get to develop and exercise. I really um, like something you said, man, like a lot, which is if you look at my resume, you'd ask yourself, what the heck is he doing? Those are the best resumes, man. Like they're the best resumes. They tend to be the most interesting people. They tend to be the most experienced people with like diversity of thought and all sorts of creativity. And I've sort of like, followed your mold in that way like if you look at mine it's like i've done a lot of random shit right but like (laughs) but like that combination of experiences makes me really it makes me much better at my job now than i think i would have been had i followed like i was at a law firm for eight years and i went in house at one company for six years then i became an associate and a deputy and and now i'm a gc like that's sort of like you know the one very traditional track but you just don't develop certain muscles. The it's one like, caveat is is staying long enough at those places to 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 dig in and understand. When you see someone that stayed at least for a few years at these places to to dig in and like understand the issues. When people hop around, you know, one year, one year, one year, it's different. But I, you know, I see the thread and I and it 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 makes sense. This like it it to me, Pedro. To your point it shows me someone that really likes learning and is really curious. And that's like the number one thing when I'm looking to hire, I'm always looking for that. Like, and if somebody has yeah. been there long enough at a place, they took the time to dig in and figure out what was going on there. So some, um, but what's long enough. Isn't that sort of relative? To, Cause yeah, I haven't yeah. like my longest tenures, Oracle five years, you know, I DOJ four years. These are my long tenures, you know? Um, I think it just depends on what you're doing and what you're working on. But, uh, I think the other component is like what millennials are proving 
is that standing still is the easiest way to get nowhere. Like they've proven it. Like they've proven it. If you want to advance and get more responsibility and more interesting opportunities, you have to be willing to move. Yeah. Um, and and I think like your resume is a testament to that. And the companies you worked at that you've left benefit from your tenure there. It's like everybody wins here. Yeah, I you know when when BNY reached out to me, I was like a bank, <laughs> like that's like that's not gonna happen. And then I like what uh, I like whatever the holidays, and uh, I was reading this book Range, and I can't think of the author now, but it's it's about like how generalists succeed in a specialist mm-hmm. world. It's kind of the subtitle. It's exactly what you're talking about, Pedro. Like this idea that can you by going and seeing different things look at problems in a different way and see parallels that folks who have been in the trenches in that industry for so long might be missing, right? And But it's a leap of faith, right? Like I was just at this blockchain law conference on Monday and I was like, I left it and I was like super impressed with the people there, but I was also like, Oh God, I'm starting all over again. Yeah. <laughs> like, like it's like, why wouldn't you just stay still and be like, you know privacy, you know this. It's like, why are you doing this to yourself? But but that's the that's the a little bit of a bet is that I'm not actually starting at zero, even if it feels like it, that like there's something valuable from these past experiences. And it's and you pay a tax, like you go back to being like low man on the totem pole, you you you, you know, and you gotta believe in yourself. You have to be both really humble and really arrogant to do it. How did you feel? Because you got to feel like you can do it. How did you feel the first time coming from the bank and these other roles, the first time someone slid an NDA your way? (laughs) I I love it. I love it. I'm like, honestly, like, so I'm, you know, I was, I think, the fifth person at Trust Machines. We're like now 25 people. And so I'm doing like big strategic stuff. And then like you're saying, NDAs, like simple things like, and I'm like, you know, every day I feel like I did something and I helped move something along that if I wasn't there, wouldn't happen. Like when you have a team of 50, at some point when it's clicking, you're like, I don't know that they need me. Like, I, or like, I'm so like, oh, I set the structure up so they can all succeed. But then it becomes really like your team executes. Like, I feel like the people who do like at these big companies, AGCs, that's the hardest work. Like if you're an AGC, that's the like, you're right in that zone of doing, managing subject matter expertise. Once you're like DGC and higher, you're like, <laughs> you know, I don't know. Like you're, you're <laughs> like, it's, it's a great gig. It, it was a great gig, <laughs> but that's a lot. If I'm reading between <laughs> the lines here, <laughs> I'm trying to not, not overinterpret this, but it sounds like you enjoyed hanging out for a couple of years. <laughs> but so, it sounds no, like no, no. it sounds like it sounds like you you know did the things that empower a team, right? And that's really at the end of the day like, you you are adding value. Like I know I know it's easy to step back and think about it even at, here at Alice with a team of 4. Like I don't I don't do the same things I did on day 1, but I think yeah. it's very um it's really fulfilling to see the machine moving and to see the things it, working. Yeah, I think that's right. And and by the way, like like setting up a, a system, operationalizing it and watching it run, sounds like you're just stepping back and you know, issue spotting when you need to, but like you are responsible, right? Like that that you you are yeah. responsible. Like my team is pretty big. You know, the tower isn't calling the line person on my team when like the New York Times is 
you know, whatever, doing whatever. I don't even want to get into nothing. But but like they call me, okay? They call me at 10 o'clock at night and go, what the fuck just happened here, right? And like I may have some awareness. I may have none sometimes. I may have a lot of awareness. It just depends on like where the issue is and what's going on. But so like you really do, as you do less of the day-to-day, you know, trench work, what really, if if you're if you're running, if your career is going the right way, you're taking on more and more responsibility and ownership over large systems that, when they fail or um, leave, des- you know, room for improvement or uh, d- desirable other actions, you're the the buck stops with you, man. Like it's your phone that rings. It's yeah. you who has to activate. No, ab- absolutely. And if you're if you're, I think, a good leader, then you're taking that on, right? Exactly. It's like you step up, you put your you put your hand up, and you're like, no, 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 that's on me, that's on yeah, me, exactly. and that's what you to protect your yep. team to do that. And I will say, like, you know, I, I kind of went in and and at BYU, they're like, you're, you're our lead technology lawyer, <laughs> and you, you know, here, here you run all the technology lawyers. And I spent like my first six months asking everybody in my team, I'm like, what's a technology lawyer? Because like, no, there's nobody at Twitter that calls themselves a technology lawyer. There's nobody good. Like, I, I don't even understand what that even means. So let me like, and so I had to like pull out like, oh no, you're a privacy lawyer. Oh, you're an IP lawyer. You're like these things. Everybody's a technology lawyer in 2022, right? In 2020, like when I took the job. And so setting up that structure and changing the mentality about it, that's what they brought me in for. And I think I was relative, you, you know, you got to ask Kevin, Kevin McCarthy, a GC there. If he's, He's mad at me, but I think he, he'll still like <laughs> return my phone calls. Like, I, I think I, I think I did. All so right much of him. it. So much <laughs> of it. You guys touched on it. And so much of it is being the person that frames up everything that the team is doing into the strategic elements and then distilling that back to the leadership team and, and thinking through the strategic parts of the business. So like that is the role in my view. The role is like got to have like eyes and and understanding without micromanaging, understanding what everybody's working on to your point. Are they organized in a way that makes sense so they can be successful and then taking the biggest strategies that the company is trying to achieve and folding the work into that. So that's where the value is. And I think your point is a good one. It's, it's somewhat opaque in some ways from the outside looking in, It, it truly is. And that's challenging. But what has to be clear, though, if somebody has to go out behind the barn and get shot, it has to be you. Yep. Like you have to your team has to feel that and and believe that so that they'll take risks so that they'll make, uh, you know, like hard decisions. It's easy. The, the easiest thing for lawyers to say is no. That's the easiest thing. It's the safest play. If I'm a junior lawyer and my GC is 15 levels above me, the safest thing for me to do every day is say no to everything because nothing's going to happen and I'm not going to get in trouble. You don't want to create that culture. And so you want to create that safety net culture where like people feel like if they make a mistake, you're going to, you know, bat for them and like yeah. and support them and help them navigate the whatever the, the the drama that ensues. And and if you don't do that, you're going to have a low functioning team is yeah. sort of my experience. Yeah. It, just to piggyback on that, too, I, I think like I thought about this a lot at Twitter. It's like as we grew that team and the product attorneys. Right. Is that like what is success for a product attorney? Right. Because it's, it's, it's clearer for like PMs, for engineering managers. And you're like, if, if you said no to something and it didn't go out the door, there's zero chance you're going to get sued for it. So is that success? That can't be success. Yeah. That can't be the incentive structure related to that. So like getting lambasted in the press about something or getting a lawsuit can't be failure either. Right. But if you get blindsided, your clients get blindsided, then you fail. Yep. Right. In terms of like what, you know, informing the risk. And I think like at a leadership level, it's 
structure is really important. And then incentivizing folks, because that was the other thing that I kind of tried to bring in as somebody who's like a technology attorney. He's like, I want to see us do cool things. That's my interest. Not, I want to kill all your good ideas because they might raise risk. I want to see cool, innovative things happen. So let's try. That's my approach. And like, clients are like, that's great. (laughs) Like, can, can we have you come in to our meeting because of that? Like, I think that like wins a lot of uh, a, a good. And way. having the, the, that meeting, having it not necessarily be clear who the lawyer is. The lawyer brings the legal skill set. Maybe they bring the privacy knowledge. Everybody's contributing to a business decision, which is critical. So, all right, before we, before we jet, will you just say, talk to us a little bit about what trust machines does? Cause I know that's going to be interesting and uh, for us to hear. Yeah. So you know, pretty, pretty early stage trust machines is basically, uh, building decentralized applications on top of Bitcoin using the stacks blockchain. Um, and so this is, this is like, you know, the, the general idea is like Bitcoin, you know, great store of value, no smart contracts, Ethereum and these new, new platforms are like, you can do all of this compute on it. Uh, the idea is actually, no, 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 you can unlock some of the same value using Bitcoin. And that's what Trust Machines is kind of kind of doing. Um, founded by a computer science professor at Princeton and uh, Muneeb Ali, who kind of helped de- uh, develop the um, Stacks blockchain as part of his PhD dissertation. So very technical, um, very focused on kind of not like, you know, in, in terms of the Web3 space, much more kind of on building apps and building user-facing apps and trying to grow that ecosystem. Um, very early days, yeah. but it's really fun and exciting. It's so. pioneering work, man. Like, I, I've been watching your your company, Anchor, and a couple others really, like, laying foundational building blocks for a new way to compute. Like, it's just, that's just what it is. It's just what it is. It's mass computing at a scale the world has never seen. Um in a transparent, uh, sort of like open way. I'm a big fan and I'm rooting for you guys. I want you guys to win. We cannot leave c- without talking about SpongeBob SquarePants. It's just got to happen. All right. So, so like, did you work on any web related matters for Mr. SquarePants? <laughs> I, I certainly. He runs like, Nickelodeon. If, if, if SpongeBob SquarePants isn't the most important employee <laughs> in the history of Nickelodeon, <laughs> I, it's got to be. So tell me about this. Yes. Absolutely. SpongeBob, you know, and, and, you know, um, dealt with, with him both like back in the, back in the old days as a web developer in terms of like, uh, you know, websites related to, and then like, you know, heading up privacy, uh, less issues on that, but like, you know, very short lived, there was a SpongeBob's the musical Broadway show. Oh no. And so I, I got to, (laughs) I got to be in New York during that time. So just, that's awesome. <laughs> not, not, you know, that's a deep cut. Not, not many people <laughs> gotta watch that. Well, I, I, I think SpongeBob's gonna go down, uh, past Mickey Mouse and past all the cartoons as the greatest cartoon character <laughs> of all time. You can see him in the background. SpongeBob SquarePants got me through law school, man. I would wake up every morning <laughs> not wanting to go to some fucking contracts class, and Nickelodeon would be running like SpongeBob reruns every morning, and I watched it every single morning for three two and a half years and it was amazing so i love spongebob thank you for your work on behalf of mr squarepants uh, and mr star these are legends i feel and, like uh, we, i feel like we should all get slimed to end this yeah, episode dude, yeah. <laughs> yeah. all right thanks for thanks for being thanks, with man. us man appreciate it uh thanks for letting me join yeah, this it was great. really fun love really good conversation it. all right